is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. And a very good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Coming up, we get the latest on the fires. Also, some good news in regards to trade and uh, the wine trade, particularly into China. And federal money has been released to control fire ants and push to eradicate a possible billion-dollar problem. Uh, Michael, this is a really important announcement. It's a really important step in the battle to stop one of the worst super pests that we have invading the whole of Australia. We know that the eradication efforts governments around the country have committed were not going to occur at the scale that is needed until the federal government came on board with some serious money. We'll hear more about that shortly. Also, uh, foot and mouth disease and pigs. We hear a little bit more about the concerns there as well. There's a whole lot more coming up on the program. But first, let's get some information on the fires. ABC Radio Emergency Information. The latest on the fires is the Namboida bushfire that started yesterday. It's back at a watch and act status with residents in Glens Creek Road and Frickers Road being advised to prepare now since there's been an increase in fire activity this morning. The fire is burning uh, approximately three kilometres north of Nimboida and burning close to isolated properties while firefighters continue to strengthen containment lines. If you're in the village of Nimboida and surrounding areas, stay alert and monitor your surroundings. There are uh, multiple fires at advice, advice level around the state as well. And there'll be more. We'll bring you some more details about uh, what the RFS have been saying in the next 30 minutes or so. There'll be another uh, update in uh, 30 minutes as well. Uh, and uh, there's also been some announcements today on uh, the uh, disaster funding from the uh, federal government for some of those bushfires. We'll bring you some of the details for that shortly on the program. It's uh, coming up to seven minutes past 12. But let's look at trade first up today because farmers are pleading with the Australian government not to sign a trade deal with Europe, suggesting it would set the agriculture industry back. The European Union is Australia's third largest trading partner at the moment with two-way trade valued at close to $100 billion and despite more than five years of negotiations on a potential trade agreement, National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson says that the current offer on the table is a bit of a dud. Look, right now, as we know, the EU FTA has finished formal negotiations, but Minister Farrell in the next couple of weeks is heading to Osaka for the G7 Trade Ministers meeting. We know he's having meetings with his European counterpart on the sidelines, and we're really concerned that he is taking his signing pen with him and he is ready to ink a deal that is really a dud deal for Australian agriculture. Why do you think it could be a dud deal and what would a dud deal look like? Well, at the moment, the offers on the table would actually put us at a significant disadvantage to farmers in, in countries like Canada, New Zealand or, or South America. It would not be commercially meaningful for Australian agriculture for nearly any commodity. And in actual fact, it would send some of our commodities backwards uh, to the position that they're in now. Can you elaborate on that? What is it that the EU is seeking? Well, signing up to the deal, for example, would impose geographical indicators on Australian farmers. Um, and as I'm sure everybody knows now, it's a different way of guaranteeing the quality of your products. Uh, it would impose between 
probably 70 and 90 million dollars extra on Australian dairy farmers. Um, and it's a balance of trade that at the moment is very much in the EU's favour. They deliver way, way, way more product than we deliver to them. Uh, and this would just be cementing some of those conditions that really uh, are not good at all for Australian farmers and would put us at a disadvantage. So what's your message to Don Farrell and the Australian government? Look, at the moment, um, we support Minister Farrell uh, maintaining his position that if it's not a good deal for Australian farmers, he needs to keep the pen in his pocket and walk away, stay at the table, keep talking. There's no rush to do this deal. It will be with Australian farmers for the next 50 years. Uh, it's too important. It offers too many opportunities for Australian farmers and for European consumers. We must take the time to get it right. Are you concerned about um, environmental regulation that could be imposed on Australian producers? Look, we've been very uh, honest and open with the Europeans about our sustainability frameworks that we have here in Australia. But we have to understand that they're very different to the European situation. Our production regimes are very different. So uh, at the moment, we do not want to have European systems imposed on us that make no sense at all to the Australian environment. You've seen a few trade deals inked in your time. Is this the most concerning? I think it's the most concerning because it's bad for nearly every commodity and it actually sends some commodities backwards. Uh, normally in a trade deal, there's winners and losers. It's really hard to see that there are any winners at all in this particular deal for Australian agriculture. Fiona Simpson, who's stepping down as president of the National Farmers Federation this week, she was speaking there with Kate, with Kath Sullivan rather. In a statement, Trade Minister Don Farrell says any deal with the EU must include practical benefits for Australian businesses, including improved market access for Australian farmers. And on that issue of trade, there's been some good news. Uh, China has agreed to review the 212% tariffs that it places on Australian wine after a breakthrough in negotiations. Prime Minister Albanese, who's due in Beijing next month, says that the two countries have agreed to suspend their long-running World Trade Organisation dispute while Beijing undertakes an expedited review of duties which is expected to take five months. Mark Bourne is the president of the New South Wales wine industry. He says the announcement is very positive, uh, positive news too, for an ailing New South Wales wine sector that's been battling poor seasons and low grape prices. Yeah, look, it was a very welcome announcement by Prime Minister Albanese that China's agreed to review the 220% import duties currently imposed on Australian bottled wine. We think it's an encouraging step forward that hopefully will lead to the removal of Chinese import duties on Australian wine as soon as we can. And it may well be that the Chinese leave some tariff on there in the end, but uh, the hope is that they'll reduce it to, you know, reduce it by a huge amount. Yeah, look, it's the start of the process, the review, and there's a bit of work to do. But uh, we think that, uh, you know, in the current landscape, it's a very difficult time for the wine industry. We've had several seasons of challenging weather events, a COVID pandemic, and now we're facing a worldwide sort of fall in consumer demand and an oversupply of wine. And this announcement of a potential pathway to resolve this multi-year trade dispute and the reopening of the Chinese market is really positive for great growers and winemakers across New South Wales. And we think that this review process, you know, could take anywhere around five months to complete. But we're really hopeful that under the current circumstances, this proposed approach is the best way for the Australian wine industry to achieve its desired result within the shortest time frame we can.
Well, it may well be that the Chinese are setting it up for an announcement when Albanese is in China. Well, we can all hope. We're farmers at heart there, Michael, and we're hoping for the best. But look, we've been supporting the Albanese government and there's been some uh, trade visits from the Australian wine industry over the last several months. And we're trying to identify some common objectives and opportunities um, outside just a straight trade thing. We're talking to the Chinese wine industry. We're talking to the researchers in the universities on how we can make those closer links and a more stable relationship between Australia and China going forward. So it doesn't happen again. And I guess the thing is that Chinese want red wine and they seem to favour Australian red wine. They buy a lot of French wine, but they seem to favour Australian Australian red wine. There's no doubt about it that the Chinese wine consumer loves Australian wine. And, you know, these multi-year trade sort of barriers put in place have been a real impediment, not only for Australia, but the wine lovers in, uh, in China especially those that love Australian red wine. Yeah, the consumption went down, I think. That's true. There's been a bit of a fall in uh, demand in China for wine on the whole. But we're hopeful that, you know, if the tariffs get taken off and the review goes, as we hope, um, that the Chinese wine lover and consumer will come back to Australian wine in droves. But it won't be a silver bullet for the industry. I mean, it's not going to solve all of Australian winemakers' problems, is it? We've got some challenges in front of us. As we said before, worldwide consumer demand is down a bit. We've got an oversupply of wine, not only in Australia, but worldwide. And the Australian wine um, sort of glut at the moment, it's going to take a few years to clear. And, and make no bones about it, if the review process goes well and China opens up to Australian winemakers, we're going to have to start again. We're going to have to establish our brands, establish our uh, distribution channels, and it's going to be hard work for a few years to get back to where we were or anywhere near it before the tariffs come in. Because it was a billion-dollar industry. So, I mean, are we hopeful it might uh, ramp up pretty quickly then I mean, into, you know, into the hundreds of millions of dollars pretty quickly? Who knows what the outlook is in the short term and medium term. But in the long term, we really like to build that relationship that we had before around that $1.2 billion worth of wine that was sold from Australia to China. Um, we can, it's going to take a bit of time, but we're, going to put, we're all going to work together. Hopefully, we'll get there in the end. And I mean, they were, Australia was accused of dumping cheap wine on the Chinese market, but the reality is actually completely the opposite, isn't it? I mean, it's the higher value that goes into China. Yeah, China was our most highest value market for many years. Out of all our export customers, it was the highest value market we had and, you know, to the total of $1.2 billion every year. And so those tariffs imposed and those accusations of dumping really hit some grape growers and winemakers at the core, you know. And, and I suppose they're really keen to re-engage and repair that relationship and look for something a bit more long-term and a bit more stable going forward. But as it is at the moment, people are, you know, thinking about pulling, um, you know, uh, vines out, aren't they, because of the price is so low? Yeah, that's one of the big challenges for the industry at the moment, and, and I must say, especially through that commercial warm inland wine regions, is that we have an excess of wine, and that means an excess of grapes, and sometimes no home for those. And some of the big decisions for the next few years, if we can't diversify our export markets, is that some vines may come out in the next few years to get that supply and demand balance back in check. Mark Bourne is the president of the New South Wales wine industry. It's uh, 17 past 12. ABC Listen.
podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And let's get the latest information on uh, some fire assistance. Uh, the latest there is uh, there's just been an announcement made about uh, disaster funding. Now, uh, the latest there is uh, that uh, the uh, disaster assistance is now available for several parts of New South Wales to help communities recover from severe bushfires. Joint funding by the Australian and New South Wales governments under the disaster recovery funding arrangements. Uh, that assistance has been activated for Inverell, Kyogle and Tenterfield local government areas for the bushfires on the 13th of October and for the Midwestern uh, local government area for bushfires from the 17th of October onwards. Federal Minister for Emergency Management uh, Murray Watts says the bushfires have caused significant damage. The Australian government is supporting impacted communities with this early assistance so recovery can begin as soon as possible. Uh, also, uh, the New South Wales government will collect information and uh, then fully understand the impact of these fires. New South Wales Minister for Emergency Services, Jihad Dib, says the bushfires have impacted communities, landowners, farmers, primary producers, and he says they'll all be supported in the clean-up and recovery. Now, some of the assistance available under the scheme is help for people whose homes or belongings have been damaged. There's some eligibility criteria applying for all of these. Also, support for local uh, affected councils with the help of cost of clean-up and restoring damage to essential public assets. Also, concessional interest rate loans for small businesses, primary producers and non-profit organisations and also freight subsidies made available for primary producers as well. So uh, that news just come to hand uh, just a few minutes ago. Disaster assistance is now available for uh, quite a number of parts of New South Wales that have been affected, those communities affected by the severe bushfires in the last week or so. It's 19 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The Australian gold price is continuing to rise into record ter- territory, going over $3,100 an ounce today. The price spike is due to the conflict between Israel and Palestine and also investors uh, flocking to gold as a safe haven for their finances and it's also great news for gold miners in New South Wales. That's according to consultant Dr Sandra Close from Sorbiton Associates. Well, more than anything, it's uncertainty. Uh, the sad and difficult situation in the Middle East at the moment, uh, it reminds me rather of the 2012-2014 situation in the Middle East and the uncertainty of that is really, I think, moving the market at the moment. So as you mentioned, it's it's not fundamentals, it's not supply and demand. It, it really is this conflict between Israel and Palestine over the Gaza Strip that's causing this spike. So, I mean, how long will this price stick around for? Will it go higher? What can you expect? Therein lies the question. One can never predict the future. And I think the question is whether it's confined to a couple of countries or whether, it, in fact, it spreads a lot further and uh, is a far more difficult situation for the world to handle. But you cannot predict the future, either in respect of just the gold price alone or indeed the whole uh, social, financial market situation that we all face. And talking of that market, and in particular the ASX, a price that is going up or is high at the moment can only be good things for some of those miners. Well, indeed, it's always fascinating to watch what happens with the gold price 
both US dollar and Australian dollar terms versus share prices in Australia because, of course, some of the companies uh, report in Australian dollars on the ASX, others report overseas, and that makes an enormous difference. But even then, uh, we find, and we certainly have done a fair bit of research on this, we find that very often even Australian investors tend to follow the US dollar price of gold uh, rather than the Australian dollar price of gold, even that's what we're trading in here and what they will be trading in here. It's quite interesting to see the, the, the market differentiation, which doesn't always quite make sense. So some have gone up, some have gone down, and uh, there's not always quite a rational reason why uh, some are more favoured than others or out of favour. Consultant Dr. Sandra Close speaking there with Tara DeLandgraft. Uh, and uh, as I said before, the uh, gold pl- price in record territory going over $3,100 an ounce today. 22 minutes past 12. Well, uh, let's uh, look at uh, uh, invasive species and control there because researchers have been looking at how to contain an outbreak of the devastating foot and mouth disease in Australia. And of course, it wreaked havoc in the UK when it was found there. And uh, now it's uh, travelled south to our nearest neighbour, Indonesia. Ondine Slack-Smith is reporting on the latest research looking at wild pigs and why the results there are so worrying. Wild pigs are all over Australia and their populations are growing. Kular farmer Tom Dunlop is seeing numbers explode at his property. We're probably trapping 50 to 60 a week and then I've got a hunter here who works for me and he's getting anywhere from 15 to 30 a week using dogs. So, you know, that puts the number up there pretty well. But we're seeing a lot of a lot of young pigs, a lot of young suckers and... Um, sows uh, with piglets, so that's a worrying trend. Heather Channon is the coordinator of the National Feral Pig Eradication Plan and says that if diseases got into the pig population, it would be very hard to control. They do have a, a, a role in the transmission of exotic diseases, including foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, Japanese encephalitis and other exotic diseases, as well as endemic diseases and zoonotic diseases that can impact um, livestock wildlife and human health. Um, it's a matter there of, of what we need to be doing to um, to reduce the risks of feral pigs in, in the roles that they have in the transmission of those diseases. Are you confident then in this action plan's ability to reduce the number of feral pigs? A lot of a lot of the challenge here is making sure that we do this consistently and, and being able to follow through and k- to keep going because once you start, you really can't stop. Feral pigs have a very high reproductive rate, so if we don't keep going, feral pig populations can can be back where we started very quickly, even within 12 months. Lachlan Marshall, a researcher in New South Wales, put collars on wild pigs to see where and how far they ranged, and then did a big cull to see how many they could eradicate. He found that pigs didn't range as far as they previously thought, but they could only kill half the population. It won't be enough in the event of a real outbreak. Pigs are um, part of the um, ungulates, so they've got um, cloven, cloven uh, hooves. So if, when FMD gets in, it affects those animals. So pigs are thought to be a, a fairly big spreader of the FMD, or foot and mouth um, disease. So what we wanted to do was we, we wanted to see whether we could locally eradicate feral pigs within a five-kilometre buffer zone um, if there was to be a FMD outbreak. So we had a simulated FMD outbreak point and we had a 5k buffer around that to try and eradicate pigs. 
why was that? How was that determined that you would use five kilometres? Why was it specific for any reason? Yes, yeah, so um, a couple of reasons. So it was it was the landholders. So we had uh, we had a great group of landholders within that area, and also through the feral pig collaring that we've done in the past, um, we knew the, the rough distances feral pigs travelled. So feral pigs don't move very very far at all. So they generally stay between that three to five square k's. How were you collaring the animals? Yeah, so um, before we did any control, we um, we trapped feral pigs within pig, with, within pig traps, um, and then we give them a drug called Zolotil, um, which we can um, sedate them with, and that knocks the pigs out for about an hour, uh, and then that gives us plenty of time to put the collar on, take the measurements, everything else that we need to record, um, and then that animal wakes up and then runs off into the bush, giving us data for the next however long we leave that collar on. So so that collar takes a fixed point every half an hour. So for every half an hour of that pig's life, we can see where it is within the landscape. What did you ultimately learn from your trial? Uh, I guess the biggest thing that we learnt was um, if, if we had an FMD outbreak within Australia, the amount of effort we would need to control feral pigs is huge. Um, we spent pretty much about four to five months solid on the ground every day targeting feral pigs um, and from the thermal um, survey results we've seen a um, 60 percent reduction in the feral pig population so um, so some of the literature says that we um, we need to target about 70 to 75 percent we need to take out 70 to 75 percent of feral pigs within a um, 12 month period or within a short period um, and if we don't do that the, the the pig population is back to where it was in 12 months were you shocked or surprised at all by the results you had? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, we thought we were doing a really good job. The, the pigs were getting harder to find. Um, we weren't seeing them as, um, as often as what we, we first started off with, so we, we were taking out a large, a large number. Um, so, yeah, we, when we got the results back from the thermal surveys at the end to see that it was only a 6% um, reduction, I, um, I was expecting that number to be slightly higher. Wild pig researcher Lachlan Marshall ending that report from Ondine Slack-Smith. It's uh, 27 minutes past 12. Well, uh, staying with uh, um, uh, incursions of uh, various things, let's look at fire ants now because the federal government has announced $268 million over four years for the National Fire Ant Eradication Program. Agriculture Minister Murray Watts says it's the biggest ever federal investment in the fight against fire ants that this country's ever seen. And Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers says fire ants are a huge economic challenge and if they continue to spread they risk endangering our health environment and agricultural industries and losing more than a billion dollars worth of value from the economy jack goff is advocacy manager for invasive species council he hopes victoria and wa and south australia follow the lead of queensland and new south wales and stump up more money uh, Michael, this is a really important announcement. It's a really important step in the battle to stop one of the worst super pests that we have invading the whole of Australia. We know that the eradication efforts of governments around the country have committed were not going to occur at the scale that is needed until the federal government came on board with some serious money. Um, expectation under the proposed national plan from Queensland was that the federal government would uh, contribute about $296 million, uh, which meant them stepping up with an extra $268 million, which is what they have done now. So that's really, really encouraging. Uh, it's important and timely that we have this funding now because we know that fire ants are on the brink of um, 
moving into the Murray-Darling Basin. They're, they're surging north towards the Sunshine Coast and they're only a Queen Anne's flight, less than, or just over five kilometres from the New South Wales border. So this is a critical moment and these are critical funds and hopefully they will hit the ground quickly because we do know that once funds are committed, it will take two to three months at least for that ramp up to occur. And is it possible to eradicate or is it just about controlling now? The experts tell us that eradication is still possible and Queensland have put together quite a um, different program than what's been done previously on fire ants using the, the, the new baiting um, opportunities that are available and essentially looking at a, at a sort of a, a horseshoe from north of Brisbane at the coast all the way out to near the Great Dividing Range and down to the New South Wales border um, Tweed Gold Coast area where they're going to be doing a 10-kilometre band of um, systemic baiting to eradicate and then every two years moving that in another seven kilometres and hopefully moving in um, over about a decade uh, to be able to then um, eradicate these ants. So we know it's possible. Uh, what it really comes down to is our government's committed? Will they put the funding in? And the big problem we have now is that that program that has been developed by the, 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 the fire ant um, program in Queensland is still about $140 million short of the funding that they have asked for. So the federal government have committed money, the New South Wales government have committed about $95 million, the Queensland government have committed $61 million. But we still don't have funding from Victoria, from WA, South Australia, Northern Territory, ACT or Tasmania. So the focus needs to be on those states to cough up their share of funding. Victoria is the big one. They need to put in about $75 million, uh, but then it's about $30 million for WA, $20 million for South Australia. And without that funding, we will not be successful. But the feds have bought us some time. So, the, yeah, and there was, and we heard that at the recent ministers' meeting that WA was dragging the chain, uh, less, less so uh, SA, and uh, Victoria also dragging the chain. You can sort of understand Tasmania not being too excited about it. But uh, are we thinking that, uh, you know, that they will stump up the money now, these other states? Look, we have had some productive discussions with some of those governments, um, certainly both Victoria and the ACT, so the ACT of about $5 million is their bill, have indicated to us that they hope that a decision will be made pretty soon. It's not clear to us where Tasmania, Western Australia and, and, um, and South Australia are at for this, but this is a national problem. It will affect you everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in Perth or Penrith, Bendigo, Byron, Hobart, you know, Adelaide, wherever you are, fire ants, if they are allowed to escape from southeast Queensland, will spread across the country. Yeah, we're, and we're hearing that, say, in Texas, it reduced livestock production there by 40%, and if they get into the tractors, they screw up the electrics and things like that. So, they, you know, we, we're talking about serious damage if they get to the sort of numbers that we see in the U.S., if fire ants get out across Australia, they will be devastating for Australia's agriculture, our environment and our way of life. As you said, in Texas, we're looking at 40% reductions in beef productivity. And that's because these ants can be in huge numbers, huge densities, um, and they swarm in really large numbers and get into the faces, into the nose, the eyes, the mouth of, um, of, of cattle and sting them and, and cause enormous stress on these animals. Similarly, we see, um, you know, large numbers of people having to go to medical facilities. I think the modelling for Australia, if it gets out across the country, is 140 
thousand extra medical presentations every year. You know, this is something that could tip some of our species towards extinction. We're talking about 95% of our frog species seeing declines is what's been um, found in um, areas of southeast Queensland where they've looked at this. And similarly, really large proportions of, of our birds, our ground-dwelling mammals and our um, reptiles being impacted by fire ants. So this is not a joke. This is not, um, you know, a side issue. This is something which is serious and it's a fight that Australia cannot afford to lose. Jack Goff is the Advocacy Manager for the Invasive Species Council and uh, he says uh, at the moment, if there's any doubt, if you see any doubt of uh, seeing any of these ants around the place, you're a bit sceptical about this, he says take a photo because you can send that photo to New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. It may not be fire ant, it doesn't matter, but uh, he said they'd just like to know where you are and if you take a photo you're worried about the ants you see, you can uh, send it uh, to New South Wales DPI and uh, they will then know and be able to make a determination as to whether or not fire ant is uh, in the state of New South Wales or also you can do it in Queensland as well to let them know where the fire ants might be there too. It's uh, coming up to uh, 26 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some better news about some rain on the way maybe that uh, might be dampening some of the fires on Thursday. But before we do that, what's happening in the news? Adam Story, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, there is actually a bit of a fire of concern up in the north at the moment. Um, it's near Nimboida, Nimboida. Yep. Uh, southwest of Grafton. You've talked about this, have you? Yep. Yeah, but we'll have an update on that in a minute. But okay. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, we've gone back on. to watch and act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch yeah, and act. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So it's sort of prepare to leave, but not just yet. Yep. And uh, the RFS said uh, they're not expecting the actual village to be impacted, but isolated properties are, are more of a concern at the moment. Over in Israel, uh, an Israeli Defence Force spokesperson uh, says a ground invasion is all but inevitable of Gaza uh, if this current situation continues. Uh, he says if Hamas uh, comes out of its hiding place and releases the hostages, the war would end. Uh, but uh, they say that's probably not uh, going to be the situation. Uh, I think people are expecting the ground invasion to happen much sooner, but um, there's still a heavy pounding of rockets in the Gaza Strip area and that Gaza city area, but still no signs of, a, of an actual ground uh, ground movement. Apparently there's a lot of, um, uh, from the relatives, of, uh, uh, actually a lot of activity on the Israeli government to try and get them to release the hostages by whatever means they can, which is uh, some of the commentators were saying last night uh, at uh, the BBC were saying that that might be the reason for the delay because there's I so would much say concern so. about if, if the hostages. If they've got confirmation that those hostages and who they are, are alive and who they right. are. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, back home, the Home Affairs Department is, says security agencies are monitoring reports that uh, two slain, uh, sorry, that slain Hezbollah fighters were commemorated at two Sydney mosques. Uh, the Australian newspaper reported has uh, newspaper has reported that commemorations were held over the weekend for six of the fighters from the militia group, which is actually declared a terrorist organisation uh, in Australia. Uh, the Prime Minister heads to the United States this week. He was going to address uh, the US Congress, but uh, isn't allowed to now because there isn't one at the moment uh, due to the uh, governing majority unable to elect its own speaker. Um, so uh, he will Which be... This is the first time ever in US history, I think. I think so, mm. yeah. Yeah, so that's third vote. Uh, it's already... This will be the fourth vote coming mm. up if they can actually find someone who's acceptable. Like if, oh, yeah, I haven't found anyone yet, have they? No, I don't no. think so, no. Well, it's only... They need to convince only eight of them. Mm. Um, but 
don't know. That's some of them just seem, seem intent on just blowing exactly. the place up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he will still continue, obviously, have talks with Joe Biden with the Yorker Security Pact, uh, one of the main items on the agenda. And there is a bit of a warning uh, that the Greater Sydney region could be on uh, water restrictions around this time next year uh, unless people start improving their water usage and conditions improve. Uh, It comes off the back of the driest winter in 37 years and what's anticipated to be a hot summer. Uh, There's been a 17% spike in water usage and Sydney water, that needs to change uh, if things are to continue as normal. Normally it's three years. To put it in context, there's normally three years before they start introducing restrictions. So to to talk about a one-year warning um, means that we're obviously going through the water pretty quick. That's right. Mm. Shorter showers, people. (laughs) (laughs) And less watering Do you're meditating elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks for that. Okay, Okay, and it's uh, uh, and Adam will be back at one o'clock with the news, with with more news. It's coming up to twenty three minutes to one here on the country. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Uh, Joining us, Shuan Park from the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. We're hearing that uh, the wind is starting to pick up a bit at the fire ground and uh, conditions are pretty volatile. We're hearing about a watch and act there at uh, roundabout Nimboida. But um, you're you're thinking that uh, the fire conditions at the the moment are still relatively benign around the state? Yes, that's right. As far as uh, the weather is concerned, I mean, only focusing on the weather side, we are actually seeing the interlude between the last cold front that went through the state during the weekend and the next cold front that will be crossing much of the state between Tuesday and Wednesday. And so um, we, we, uh, we did this uh, where we have seen some uh, moderation of temperatures, although the heat is still remaining in the northeast. But as far as the winds are concerned, uh, winds are actually uh, has de- decreased. And so with that, perhaps we may see some um, light to moderate easterly along the coast tending westerly about the ranges and in, in the inland, but not really that strong, although the fire danger ratings in the northeast is still remaining uh, high fire dangers. Uh, but on the other hand, we expect uh, generally dry weather conditions, maybe apart from the chance of uh, a, sh- a shower or thunderstorms, with very little rainfall, if at all, in the far northeast today because of the anchoring of, of trough in the regions and the similar weather conditions tomorrow, but increasing heat tomorrow ahead of the next cold front. And with this, we may see the maximum temperatures uh, rising to mid-30 ranges uh, in many parts uh, of, of the state tomorrow. Uh, but along the coast, we may see freshening of north easterly uh, sea breezes so we did that uh, uh, well the, the temperatures in uh, along the coast may not really be that that bad uh, but um, the westerly winds will start to pick up and uh, uh, these uh, westerlies uh, uh, also combining with uh, the heat pu- being pushed to the northeast ahead of the next cold front will uh, bring extreme fire dangers in many parts of the northern inland and hunter on Wednesday. So Wednesday will be the next uh, spike of uh, the fire dangers where we, uh, when we may possibly see fire dangers warning and maybe return of total fire bans in, uh, in many parts of the northeast and so on. Also, there is, um, there is a potential for uh, severe thunderstorms in the northeast as well. Um, where we did, we did this, uh, although we are not really ex- expecting much rainfall out of these thunderstorms on Wednesday, there may be a potential for damaging winds gusts and uh, large hail as well. Then, uh, after this cold front, 
maybe between Thursday and Friday, we will see completely changed weather conditions because we expect a development of a cool uh, southeasterly south airstream, uh, especially along the eastern half of the state. And because of a very strong high-pressure system moving over, uh, crossing the uh, Bass Strait will bring strengthening south to southeasterly winds and together with the showers and the cloud. And with that, uh, between Thursday and Friday, we may potentially see um, wide, uh, some 30 to 50 millimeters of rainfall in some parts of the north coast. That will certainly uh, bring a good useful rain to the firefighting efforts in the, in the region. So fingers are crossed. So this is Thursday, Friday, but in the meantime, it sounds as though the weather conditions are worsening until we get to Thursday with the winds and also with the higher temperatures. But then there is the potential for this um, quite, could be quite useful rain Thursday, Friday. That's right, yes. So ahead of these changes, maybe even on Wednesday, we may see the temperatures soaring up to high 30s or even close to 40s in many parts of the northeast. So that will certainly be quite bad for the existing fires. But on the other hand, you know, we did this completely changing uh, on, uh, during the latter, latter part of the week, not just the showers, but there will be significant decrease in temperatures as well as uh, um, uh, increasing cloud as well. So temperatures will be dropping down to maybe, I don't know, close to 20 degrees. And also, um, well, uh, because there will be good uh, decent showers, especially uh, focused around the northern half of the coast, especially mid-north coast and the northern rivers, uh, we are really hopeful that this will certainly bring relief to the firefighting effort in the region. Okay, well, absolutely. I would imagine that uh, many people are hoping for that. And we've heard from some landholders saying that, you know, the only way these fires are going to get out is by significant rainfall. So hopefully that will that will happen. So at the moment, it's looking like 30 to 50 millimetres in that area where we see the fires at the moment, Juan. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. For two-day totals, you know, between Thursday and Friday and the, uh, our, our um, by look of it, the rainfall period will be focused mainly between late Thursday into the first half of Friday maybe uh, and also there could be some few more millimetres of follow-up showers in the north coast during the weekend as well. Okay, alright, well um, fingers crossed that does happen but in the meantime uh, weather conditions aren't that great for uh, for fires with the winds and the uh, and the heat picking up uh, in, into Tuesday, Wednesday Juan, uh, thanks for that yeah, my pleasure. It's 17 minutes to one on the country. Let's get a bit more fire information. ABC Radio, emergency information. So the Nimboida bushfire we were just talking about there that started yesterday, it's back at the watch and act status with the residents in Glens Creek Road and Frickers Road being advised to prepare now. It's uh, There's been a bit of an increase in fire activity this morning. The fire is burning approximately... Three kilometres north of Nimboida and burning close to isolated properties where firefighters continue to strengthen containment lines. If you're in the village of Nimboida and surrounding areas, stay alert and monitor your surroundings. Also, there are some multiple fires at advice advice level around the state. Uh, According to the latest update from the RFS, the wind is starting to pick up. Activity on the fire ground is increasing. Conditions are volatile, hence the upgrade to watch and act. The focus on the Glens Cleek Road and Frickers Road. Approximately 30 properties, they say, may come under threat. 
In the next few hours, the southeast corner of the fire is pushing smoke towards Nimboida, but no real threat to the village at this point in time. Helicopters are assisting and uh, community advice is to monitor conditions by listening to the ABC and uh, monitoring the website Hazard Near Mayor and also uh, on the app as well. And uh, the other news that's uh, just come out about half an hour ago was disaster assistance is now available to those parts of New South Wales that we've been talking about. They're affected by fires. Uh, in the Inverell, Kyogle, Tenderfield local government areas, those bushfires from the 13th of October, then in the Midwestern local government authority for bushfires from the 17th of October onwards, uh, assistance uh, being made available uh, with joint funding from the federal and state government for the disaster recovery funding arrangements. So that's just been announced about, as I said, about half an hour ago. It's uh, coming up to um, uh, a quarter to one on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. We're talking about the weather. The last five months have been the driest that Graham Forbes has seen on his dairy farm in the Gloucester region. It's that dry he'll need to buy in feed from Victoria to keep his 800 cows going at a cost of about a million dollars. His strategy is to keep all his cows, given the record 90 cents a litre base price he's now receiving from Relactalis for his 7 million litres of milk. He spoke to Kim Honan about the decision to leave Norco, where he had been the dairy cooperative's largest supplier oh look it was a big move big decision our family had supplied a cooperative for 118 years the payment system and the system there was a lot less risk adverse um it wasn't all about um, straight out payment but uh the uh, their payment system and um the way they paid us for milk suited our farm a lot better uh, than the uh, than the norco position so uh, we've and we're able to secure a three-year locked-in price, um, as well as we had a quite a, a, a more attractive base to get new milk on, and uh, those those factors all played uh, into why we made that decision. On your property at Gloucester, you're officially in drought. How are things looking? I would say we've had the driest five-month period ever on record at Gloucester. Uh, virtually, we haven't had any effective rain. Uh, since mid-April and uh, yeah, look I think um, it's looking as bad as what it was in 2019 here at the moment, you know, rivers are stopping and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, herds on uh, total hand feed. So you've got 800 cows, are you having to buy in feed, supplementary feed? Yeah look we've been able to uh, irrigate on the on the dairy product, uh, property up to this stage and uh, maintain our production but we are starting to bring in large supplies of um, hay particularly and uh, other uh, commodities. Uh, we're probably looking at a, a budget of around a million dollars to uh, purchase hay this year. Um, in other seasons, we don't purchase any. So uh, it's quite a large commitment that we'll be making. And, uh, yeah, so uh, we're just trying to uh, cover our bases. And as you said earlier, we've been able to secure... Uh, what we feel is quite a comfortable co- contract with Lactalis that allows us to back ourselves in to make that purchase. You're saying you'll be spending a million dollars on bringing in hay this year? Yes, that's what we're budgeting on at the moment. 
yeah, we're bringing hay out of Victoria and uh, currently our transport costs are quite high. In some cases, the transport cost is nearly equal to the purchase price of a hay. Yeah, and could you do with some sort of government uh, transport fodder subsidy? Oh, look, you know, uh, being larger farmers, it's only a smaller um, subsidy, that is. And look, it is very questionable. I, I, I think, you know, we'd be better off getting funds to you know, drought-proof our properties. And, uh, yeah, it was really disappointing that the government made the decision a couple of weeks ago to reduce our harvestable rights, you know. And, and there's no uh, economic or environmental reason against that. And uh, yeah, what it would do, it actually would protect our rivers in these times of extreme drought. And what sort of impact has that uh, changed by the government policy reducing the coastal harvestable rights from 30 to 10% actually had on your plans to, to drought-proof your operations? Oh, well, we were looking at a property uh, a couple of weeks ago um, that had potential for a 100-litre dam on it. Uh, I found out uh, just before the auction that um, that would not be able to be, uh, go ahead. Uh, we believe that that property then devalued by half a million dollars. So it's a very substantial devaluation of our properties and uh, yeah, it's virtually uh, near outright theft as far as I'm concerned. So what else can farmers do then to, to drought-proof their property if they're now not able to you know, build or enlarge these dams to, to capture more rainfall? Well, it's very difficult, you know, the... The only thing we can do is things like to try and conserve more feed um, in the better seasons and have larger amounts of stored feed. But, you know, we still need water. You know, dairy industry uh, is, is very reliant on water supplies. Graham Forbes is a dairy farmer at uh, Barrington near Gloucester. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 10 minutes to one. Well, the forecast for this week in the south of the state is to be dry, but a year ago things were very different. There was a low-pressure system that brought storms and heavy rainfall across the state, and the ground was so sodden in the uh, in the south it couldn't absorb the rain. The creeks and the rivers were uh, already running high, and we saw some of the worst flooding in Victoria's history. There were evacuations and flooding across uh, southwest New South Wales as well. Luke Barlow is a Moama farmer and shearer and explained to Simon Wallace what he was doing this time last year. Some of the sheep that were stranded in the Paracuta Forest, they were, the the field they were in actually had a levee bank around it, um, so they were dry, but there was no way of getting them for the, it was kilometres of water all around them, so um, the only way in was by helicopter, and that was pretty stretched for resources and rescue missions at the time. So the farmer managed to airdrop some portable yards in there as well as uh, a motorbike and all the necessary equipment to uh, get some sheep crutched. Uh, He was concerned that being in wool, um, he couldn't shear them at the time, uh, and with the humidity and rain and floodwaters, he was concerned for their welfare with uh, fly strikes. Have you ever done a job like that before, Luke? Uh, no, no. To be honest, it was uh, it was certainly a first for me. But you know, being in the um, shearing industry a little bit and having animals myself as well as a farmer, like I, you could just see that you know we weren't threatened by these floods, but a lot of farmers were. And anything that I could do to help was I could see a benefit. So I jumped at the opportunity. Um, we organised a couple of boats 
to take our shearing gear in there and um, plenty of mozzie repellent, of course, and, and sunscreen because we were just out in the open and we boated in there along the Paracuta Road into the in towards the Paracuta Forest. We couldn't take dogs in there because we were concerned there might have been snakes and that being only dry land, so... We managed to muster them into the yards on foot and with the motorbike and uh, pretty much got to work crutching these sheep and, and lambs. You know, not only that, we could put some fly strike control on them at the same time as well as a drench and just, just make sure you know, their welfare was going to be OK for the next couple of months because that's sort of a time frame that we were being told that they could have been surrounded by this waterfall. And the only day, Luke, that you took a tinny to work. Yeah, well, it was uh, yeah, <laughs> it was quite unique. Um, we we were sort of with the mosquitoes in there were incredible, um, but luckily you know plenty of mozzie repellent, and there was some storms around, and we managed to take a gazebo in there to set up over the top of us. So just as we got started, the torrential rains started as well. So the sheep were were actually saturated, and we were pretty much working in a mud. Pit. So it was a, you know, it wasn't an easy task at all. It was, um, it was, it was a hard slog, but you know, the job got done, and that's the main thing. Was it the hardest day's work you've done? No, but it's, it's up there. But it was probably the most satisfying. Yeah, for sure. Moama farmer and shearer Luke Barlow. Let's go to markets. First up to Bendigo sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. The lamb market held up under the test of much bigger numbers today. Twenty-five thousand lambs come in, nine thousand more than a week ago. Finding weight remains an issue for exporters and the heaviest suckers over 30 kilos sold from $162 to a top of $181 for around 34 kilos carcass weight with a push by buyers late in the sale lifting prices by up to $15 on a week ago. But overall, when all sales were put into the pot today, averages for heavy suckers over 26 kilos were similar to 10 to 20 cents off the pace of last Monday. The 26 to 30 kilo crossbreds, 138 to 162 to average $149 at around 535 cents a kilo. Best heavy trades, 125 to 139. There was some price fluctuations on the general run of trades in the 22 to 24 kilo range, which went from 107 to 129 dollars, depending on quality. The spread for most domestic lambs was 470 to 580 cents. 6,000 sheep still to be sold. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Let's go to Corowa sheep and lambs. Good afternoon, Agents Panda. Total yarding of 13,300 sheep and lambs. Just over 8,000 new season lambs were offered. The quality was very good in places, with domestic buyers keen to participate. All regular processors were in attendance, joined by restockers, with some strong competition at times. New season light and medium trade lambs were firm to $2 dearer, selling from $85 to $121. Heavy trade eased $3, $114 to $140. Heavy lambs slipped $2, selling from $134 to $147. Export types sold for up to $155. Light lambs to the processor sold from $60 to $105. Old lambs sold to dearer trends. Heavy types lifting $14, selling from $130 to $160. Hoggets lifted $6 to $20. Heavy crossbreds $76 to $105. Heavy merinos $65 to $100. Mutton was firm to $10 softer. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Dubbo sheep and lambs. 
Numbers remained similar with the yarding of 13,800 lambs. There was a mixed yarding with good numbers of trade weight old lambs as well as some good lines of outstanding heavyweights. There were not the numbers of fresh new season lambs compared to the previous sale. Lightweight lambs for the processors were $5 dearer with a 12 to 18 kilogram two scores selling from 29 to 77. The few trade weight new season lambs were around firm selling from 73 to 105. Trade weight old lambs were firm to five dearer, with the 20 to 24 kilogram lambs selling from 60 to 117, to average between 400 and 470 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were 10 to 20 dollars dearer, with the old lambs weighing 24 to 30 kilograms selling from 112 to 145, while the lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 126 to 190, to average 505 cents a kilogram. Lambs to the restockers were cheaper, selling from 24 to 60. Hoggets were dearer, selling to 88 dollars. We have the balance of the lambs and 6,800 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Wagga cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers dropped back to 3,100 this week, and of which there were 600 cows helping make up the numbers. Quality was fair to very good with a lot of stock over 400 kilos. Most buyers made it to the sale and all were looking to make purchases, which did give the market a lift. Restockers also chimed in across lighter weight classes. Only a few veal to quote, 155 to 238. Trade steers and heifers bounced 20 cents, 196 to 235 for the steers and 168 to 240 for the heifers. Lightweight steers back to the paddock gained 15 cents, 190 to 238. Feeder steers jumped 20, 182 to 240. Feeder heifers were firm with the heavier end out to 10 cents dearer, 160 to 194. Heavy steers and bullocks were 15 to 20 cents stronger, 186 to $2.50. Heavy cows gained five, 165 to 198. The middle run picked up eight to 10 cents, 134 to 168. On the Andax for MLA. Forbes cattle. Numbers fell this summer with agency adding 859 head. Quality was mixed with some good lines of finished cattle on offer along with the planer types. Not all the usual bars are present competing in a firm to dearer market. Yearling steers were 8 to 10 cents better with those to processors receiving from 180 to 225, feeders paying from 160 to 212. The heifer portion held fairly firm with those to processors from 135 to 198, feeders paying 156 to 165 for the planer lines. Heavy steers and bullocks were 10 cents better to receive from 160 to 225. Grown heifers sold from 142 to 189. Cows were firm to 5 cents better with heavy two score 130 to 150 and three score from 165 to 182. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Tamworth cattle. Good afternoon. There were 1,820 fair to very good quality cattle penned, a larger percentage of well-finished cattle off-crop. Most of the usual buyers operated, one less export processor. A little more demand saw light and medium-weight yearlings to his firm to dearer, 120 to 252 cents a kilo. Heavyweights to feed and process sold a cheaper trend, 160 to 228. Trends varied through the yearling heifers with quality of factor. Lightweights cheaper with sea muscles, 126 to 174 cents. Medium-weight feeders shade dearer 155 to 182 the heavyweights were cheaper 150 to 200 not a lot of change on heavy ground steers to process 190 to 210 two and three score medium weight cows were shade cheaper selling from 115 to 153 while the heavyweights saw an odd dearer sale 152 to 181 cents a kilo for three and four scores james armitage for mla in tamworth and stay listening to ABC Local Radio for the latest on the fire information and update coming up on that uh, shortly. But now we're heading to the news. It's one o'clock.